From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker and editor of the CQ Budget Newsletter. And joining me today is Jennifer Shutt, who covers appropriations for CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Jen. Thanks for having me. And we're going to give listeners a double feature today. First, a preview of the year to come in the appropriations process. And second, a look at a little-notice provision in a funding bill last year that has widened a fight among terrorism victims seeking federal compensation. But first, Jen, you wrote in CQ's magazine this week about the outlook for appropriations this year. How do you see things shaping up? I think there's going to be a lot of activity this year. We know that the president's budget request is supposed to come out February 10th. That right. typically kicks everything off. That starts the month month to two month process on Capitol Hill of having hearings and the appropriations subcommittees where various department and agency heads head up to the Hill and kind of justify where they want spending increases, um, new programs that they may be starting, new contracts and things like that. That's going to be really important this year to pay attention to you both in the House subcommittees and the Senate appropriations subcommittees because they have their top lines already for the upcoming fiscal year, fiscal year 21. So that helps a lot, right? It helps them get going. But the important thing to kind of note is that there's not a whole lot of additional funding to go around when compared to the current fiscal year. Um, So they are going to have to be very judicious about what programs get additional funding in fiscal year 2021. Um, And those potential increases for certain, you know, favorite bipartisan programs are going to be much smaller than they have been in the past. So that's going to be one thing to really watch is if you are a department or agency that proposes a big plus up in your funding overall or for just for a specific area, um, there's going to lawmakers are going to be looking for very serious justifications for that. There won't be room in the. the, Yeah, yeah, it's basically flat funding, right? It's an increase of less than one percent. Yeah, it's a very small increase, especially when you compare it to the percent increases that both defense and non-defense discretionary programs have had under those that 2011 deficit reduction law. They've been typically a lot higher than they're going to be. So they can get going because we have these overall discretionary limits, um, but they may not get far, right? Right. And I think we're definitely going to see a full round of hearings in the House Appropriations Subcommittees and the Senate panels as well. I would expect both committees mark up all 12, all 12 or potentially close to all 12 um, spending bills, depending on how things go, particularly in the Senate Appropriations Committee with what amendments want to be offered. We know there was a little bit of an issue back in September in terms of what constituted a poison pill amendment and whether or not senators could put forward um, any amendment they wanted during markup. And so that actually held back a couple of the bills. So that's another thing we'll be watching for on the Senate side. But we don't really anticipate any issues like that. And the House Appropriations Committee, so they will probably mark up all 12 bills and report all 12 bills to the floor. We know from various interactions with House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Democrat in Maryland, that he anticipates June being the month for House floor debate on these spending bills, although he didn't promise that all 12 would come to the floor. Last year, the House had to hold back the legislative branch spending bill for an issue about whether or not 
Members should get a cost of living adjustment, which is essentially an increase in their pay. Um, And then the Homeland Security spending bill was also held back in the House from floor debate last year over various um, issues and disagreements within the party about immigration and customs enforcement, border wall spending, customs and border protection, all of those issues. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting year. Um, And then on the Senate side, whether or not any of the spending bills comes to the floor remains to be seen. It's a very short calendar year for Congress because it is an election year and members want to get back to their states or their districts and be campaigning and be fundraising and walking in parades and kissing babies and all that, you know, great stuff that you get during an election year. Um, And obviously, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, he's up for re-election. So he has some incentive to increase the amount of time he's spending in his home state. But he is also a pretty big fan of these judicial nominees. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but he really likes to kind of spend a lot of floor time on advancing these, these judges. And so whether or not he chooses to move off of that calendar and start debating spending bills remains to be seen. Floor time in the Senate is a bit more precious than floor time in the House in terms of how long you have to spend debating these measures. So yeah. that that remains to be seen. And with the election campaigns heating up, I mean, chances are they're not going to want to devote much time to appropriations before the November elections, right? It depends. I think in the Senate, it could be there could be some tough floor debates on amendments with Democrats trying to put certain vulnerable Republicans on recorded votes that could cause them some issues back home. So I think it's less likely that we see floor debate in the Senate, but there's still mm-hmm. no formal announcement on that yet. Sure. But good bet that we're looking at another stopgap funding measure come September. Uh, it's highly likely. Yeah. Probably into the lame duck in mid-December and then um, whether or not appropriators, congressional leadership and the White House decide that they want to wrap up all 12 spending bills in the lame duck. I think that could have a lot to do with the outcome of the November elections. So that's just way too far out, too many variables to really predict what's going to happen during the lame duck session. And we should say there's an impeachment trial about to begin, we think, this week. Um, But we don't know how long that's going to last. But if it becomes a prolonged thing, obviously, uh, the work in the Senate could slow down, including appropriations. Yeah, I'm not particularly sure how long that trial is going to last. If it gets going this week, then there's still a full three weeks before the president's budget request is formally sent up to the Hill, kicking off the fiscal year 2021 process. And I don't really think most senators expect a really long trial. So even if it does go four or five weeks, that's really only delaying the start of those hearings and then potentially the markup schedule by a week or two. That's really nothing compared to what happened last year when we didn't get those top line spending levels until late July, just before the August recess. Okay. Now we turn to a complicated but important story that David worked on this week. Iran is front page news these days, as it was 40 years ago when the American hostage situation took place. And after decades for for financial compensation, um, there was a fund created five years ago 
for the people who went through that situation. And David, you had a story about this in CQ magazine this week. So can you walk us through what this story is all about and why it's gotten really complicated? Sure. We now have the situation, Jen, where you have you have terrorism victims of different causes essentially fighting each other for a limited pool of federal dollars here. Uh, as you said, about five years ago, Congress created this this fund for victims of state-sponsored terrorism, which was originally designed for the Iran hostages who were taken hostage in the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Uh, and they've been waiting forever to get their payments. And then now we have a we had a court ruling several years ago that said the victims of 9-11 are also eligible to tap the same pool of money. And since this is a limited amount of funds, there is some frustration among both people who were victims of the Iran hostage situation and people who had family members die in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, right? Because there are concerns that this money could potentially run out or that more people being eligible for it means that the payouts will be reduced. Right. This has made no one happy is what it comes down to. Um, once these 9-11 families have had access to this same pot of money as the Iran hostages, there wasn't enough money to go around. There wasn't even enough money before then, but now there's even less because you've got a surge of claimants seeking access to this fund. And so last fall, Congress inserted a provision in a spending bill that basically cut the fund in half and said half the money will go to Iran hostages and other victims of state-sponsored terrorism, and half the money will go to 9-11 families. But that mean, what it means is they're going to be waiting years and years and years more to get their full judgments awarded because there's not enough money in there. And so this would be the first time that individuals who went through the Iran hostage situation are getting access to a victim's compensation fund. But you reported in your CQ magazine story that this isn't the first compensation fund for people who had family members die in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Right. You might remember in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks, Congress did create a fund just for the 9-11 victims. And that paid out over $7 billion in, in award money for these families. They've gotten their payments. But what happened since then is the court ruling in New York that said Iran should be held responsible for 9-11, which was a very controversial ruling because the 9-11 commission that looked into all this did not find Iran was behind it. But because of that court ruling, the 9-11 families won court judgments saying they're entitled to some of this money. And you spoke to some people who are on both sides of this debate. What are the feelings around this? And what do you think is going to take place in the next couple years as this pot of money sort of reduces in size? Well, the feelings are raw and emotional. Um, I talked to a former Iran hostage uh, named William Doherty, who lives in Georgia, who's been waiting years and years for some compensation. He's gotten a tiny little piece of what he's owed. Each Iran hostage is owed about $4 million. Um, he's gotten a tiny little piece, but most of it's being held up. And you can understand from his perspective, now he's seeing all these 9-11 families coming in. And most of the immediate 9-11 families had already had payouts. And now they're seeking access to the same money he's counting on. So that that's hard for him, people like him to take. And on the other hand, I talked to a guy, Charles Wolf, who lives up in New York City, who lost his wife in the Twin Towers. And he says, sorry, but I feel entitled to this. There's a court judgment that says 
I have it. And, and he had less sympathy for the Iran hostages. He says, you know, the Iran hostages came home, but where's my family? Where's my wife? I lost her. So and this is a very tense issue. I mean, this, these are, this is one of those things. It that triggers not- a lot of emotions on both sides. Yeah. Uh, and there wasn't much Congress could do to really appease it because of the court rulings that just put them in a box here. Because once they had those legal judgments, the 9-11 families were entitled to go to this Iran fund, essentially. And so that's what Congress was trying to iron out last fall. But it's it's never it, – this is not the final solution because there still won't be enough money there to, to make it all work. And this isn't – this fund – can you walk us through how the money gets into this fund? It's not that sort of traditional taxpayer stream of funding. Right. Back. It's not paid by taxpayer dollars in general. This fund was financed – by criminal and civil penalties that businesses have to pay when they're found to have done business with state sponsors of terrorism. And so a portion of those penalties go into this victim's fund, and only those penalties are what finances it. Now, last fall, Congress increased the percentage of penalties that go into this fund. Um, So there's a little more money to play with here, but there's still not going to be enough for everybody. And so you spoke with some lawmakers as well. And what were they saying in terms of what they plan to do or what they could potentially do if this fund gets close to zero dollars? Yeah, all well, of the awards have not been paid out. I mean, I talked to Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who was instrumental in authoring this provision last fall. And he said, if, if there's not enough money, Congress can always appropriate more money for the fund. But of course, that's easier said than done, particularly when you're not trying to use taxpayer dollars to do it. And most of these penalty money revenues now have since been tapped. So we'd have to see if that's really possible. And, you know, I did ask him, does he really consider Iran responsible for 9-11? Because that's what triggered this whole, <laughs> this whole problem. Very controversial. Right. Because the 9-11 Commission didn't think so. Uh, and he said, no, he doesn't think really that, that Iran is responsible for 9-11, but he was okay in setting it up this way, he said, in terms of it's sort of, he viewed it as a form of rough justice, that Iran's up to shady dealings, and this is a way of tapping money through their name to compensate victims of 9-11. Okay, a very complicated story, um, but really good reporting. It's in CQ Magazine this week if you want to read more about it. And David, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Thank you, Jen. That does it for us today. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email at cqpodcast at cqrollcall.com. The CQ Budget Podcast is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. My thanks again to Jennifer Shutt, our appropriations reporter, for joining me. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much for having me, David. And thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. You can stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or just Google the phrase CQ Budget Podcast. And we'll be back next week.